To compel. It literally means to draw attention and to draw you to. To compel. That's our king, Jesus Christ. He's the compelling king. Jesus Christ is, well, he's all that. He's compelling. In every single piece of him, he draws attention in how he goes about living and working with us. And he draws us to him. He is the almighty. He is the all-knowing. He is the ever-present king of everything. He is compelling. And all too often we may meet someone where they're like, I don't know. I don't see what the big deal with Jesus is. Then you haven't met my king. Amen? Amen. That's what we need to be getting after in this. Our whole point in going through this series, compelling king, is that we get a refreshing reminder. And maybe for some of us, a first-time inkling of what the greatness of Jesus Christ is all about. You know, scripture talks about man's salvation. In fact, some even say... That's the whole point of the word is the redemption of man. I challenge that. The whole point is the glory of God Almighty. And he redeeming us is yet one more reason he should be glorified. The chief end of man is to glorify God with all we've got. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about what this church can do with that. Think about it. We talked about him as the creating king. That's compelling. He speaks and it is. Oh, and it's perfect, by the way. We talk about him as the preparing king throughout the whole Old Testament as he's making known to you and me his future plans and how he's going to redeem and that he hasn't let us go. And God's got a plan. The preparing king. Last week we were looking at him as the serving king. When... The God of the universe, the supernatural God, bursts onto the natural scene and makes himself known. He could have walked in and said, I want to be clear, it is all about me. And instead he said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve first. That's part of it. But we need to grasp That he is a serving king, loving and gentle and providing. We even ended last week with what serving looked like as he healed and as he moved amongst the people. He was there to literally fix and work with and be a part of the creator of everything, kneeled down before his creation and served. Now that's compelling. What's that all about? Today, we're actually dealing with a little bit more of that serving as we talk about the sacrificial king, his sacrifice, the ultimate example of serving the sacrificial king. We're going to be learning all about the greatness of our God and his sacrifice for us today. What is so compelling about this sacrifice? What was the unique character and attributes that went into this sacrificial king? That's what we're going to learn about today. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53. This is uh, one of those prophet um, stories that is awesome to learn about. And we're going to take some time with it. we got ushers coming forward. They've got Bibles in their hands. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, get their attention. They'll get one to you, okay? Isaiah 53. Now, before we dive in, let's just make sure we know a few things, all right? When we jump into a book, we got to know where we're at and what's going on. So, Isaiah. It's a book of prophecy. 
It was written about 750 to 800 years before the time of Christ. Okay. And uh, in that writing, it was written while the uh, right before and right during some of the exile time where they were uh, taken captive. Israelites were taken captive. The story of this prophet, well, it's captured in his name. His name literally means salvation is Yahweh's. Salvation is Yahweh's. The book of Isaiah is all about deliverance. It starts with, you better recognize your sin, boys. Like, that's where it starts. You better understand the holiness of God and, well, quite frankly, your lack thereof. And then it starts moving through the vastness of our God and the greatness of our God and the deliverance capabilities of our God and the salvation that's available in him. And then we get to Isaiah 53, where he describes exactly how it's going to be meted out. That's where we pick it up in Isaiah 53. Now, notice this, too. It's also written in Hebrew poetry. So we've talked about this before, right? Poetry in English, it's like, right? It's kind of got this rhyme and rhythm thing to it, right? And if it doesn't do that, then we're like, that was a lame poem, right? Or if it doesn't end with a rhyme at the end of it, well, that guy didn't try hard. Those don't rhyme, right? That's English poetry, okay? Hebrew poetry, very different. It's one line and then another line placed after it. And the two lines are related to each other. They, they might be related and they're saying the same thing with different words. Synonymous parallelism. Or it might be taking this phrase and trying to extend on it. Synthetic parallelism. So as we read through, there's line and then another line. Line and then another line. Be watching the poetry. It's making a powerful statement about what his point is. Okay? So that's where we're reading today. Isaiah 53. Some poetry. As we watch God explain why and how he is so compelling as a sacrificial king. All right. So the first point that we learn is this. Humble. He was rejected. This is what compelling nature to this king. He's humble. He's rejected. We'll start out in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The author is saying this. Who's the remnant? Who's getting the story here? Not everybody's going to gather this story and get who he is. A lot of people are going to turn away from him, but there are a few that are going to grasp him. Who's seeing the very arm of the Lord moving? The power of God being exerted. The display of God right before you. Who's seeing it and catching it? That's his question. We're going to just, as we bounce through this, every once in a while, we're going to jump forward to a New Testament statement. Don't worry about turning there. I'm just going to tell you some of them as we see this prophecy being fulfilled. Remember, it's 800 years before the time of Christ. 750 years, somewhere in there. He said, who's going to believe it? In other words, there's a lot that aren't. Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 to 44. Talks about them wagging their heads at them. I love that phrase. Wagging your head. Not wagging your tail. Wagging your head. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're standing over in the corner and you're like, can you believe that guy? Like that's wagging your head. This big demonstrative, I have no idea what words he just used, but I can tell you they weren't positive, right? As you're doing this kind of thing. And then it says after it that there was deriding, that they had hatred for him. They didn't get the message. The question is who? And the answer is a small remnant. Well, what's the message? Here's the message starting in verse 2. 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He grew up before them. Luke chapter 2 verse 25 says he grew up in wisdom and in stature before them. We see in Matthew 13, 55, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's boy? Like, what's so special about him? Why is he the one who's supposedly getting all the attention right now? And what's so unique about that kid? They were seeing him grow up right before him. What else about this humble king? What position did he take? Not only did he grow up before mankind, it says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus did not have it in the looks department. It's kind of what it's saying. Just so you know, God of the universe, he's saying, I will clothe myself with humanity and I will sacrifice myself for them. I am going to look. Right. And all the angels are listening and everybody's like, I can't imagine how awesome he's going to like this. And they're like, really? Are you serious? Like you're just the same height as them. And you're kind of like the same looks as them. There's nothing even special about you. I don't understand why you chose those looks. Humility demonstrated in every aspect of his physical taking on. Jesus Christ did not have it going on in the looks department. So as we look in the mirror in the morning, dot, 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 you can fill that one in, right? It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected by men. Notice this, Mark nine twelve says, the son of man will be treated with contempt. He will know sorrows and grief. Well, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Luke twenty two forty four. In agony he prayed, sweats of drops of blood pouring off of him. Our king knew agony. Our king knew pain. Our king knew mediocrity in the physical arena. Our king knew what it meant to clothe himself in a way where he simply said, humble. Not drawing attention that way. We're going a different direction. Why in the world would he do that? Notice what it says right at the end. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. In other words, we really didn't think much of him. We pretty much blew him off in that regard. John 1.10 says, the world did not know him, nor did they receive him. He wasn't being grasped for his greatness. Why was he not being grasped? Well, maybe it's because of this. The world's measuring stick. I put down three things the world might look for when they look for somebody great. Uh, pretty, powerful, and well-liked. I couldn't think of a third P. Pretty, powerful, and well-liked, right? It's kind of like, do they look gorgeous? You know, as they walk in the room, people are like, ooh. That person's got it, right? Or are they powerful? I mean, they walk in the room and you're like, my word, head and shoulders, up, right? The guy is ripped, right? Or I look at his character and the way he stands up in, right? Or well-liked. Everybody knows that person. 
It seems like every time you say, hey, do you know so-and-so? They're like, oh, yeah, I met them last week. Aren't they great? And the world's view of who should lead. Pretty, powerful, oh, and popular, my wife just said. Here's a P word. <laughs> popular. Maybe I should have talked to her this week. All right, write that down. I'll use that in the second service. How obvious was that one, too? That's Unbelievable. God's measuring stick. How many of you were sitting there going, he should have said popular? I'm just sitting down now. God's measuring stick. Humble. I'm not even rhyming these things or anything, all right? Humble, sacrificial, obedient, loving, forgiving. Are you hearing it? Interior, character, heart. The measuring stick of the Almighty is where's your heart? The measuring stick of the world, what do I see on the outside? That's what it's about. The problem was he declothed himself of what the world would love, but he clothed himself with what was absolutely divine. And it was being missed. Humble. It's compelling. I'm telling you, the world doesn't get it, but the world does appreciate it at some level. They notice it. I'll at least give them that. The world does notice it. In our job, as ones following the ultimate and humble, is to be humble ourselves. It's to make sure we grasp what it looks like to not try to go after the world's measuring stick, but to go after God's. Humble in all we have. Uh, let me just say this. There was an illustration that I used a, a while back. We had talked about a guy who had above his desk a certain picture, and it was a picture of, well, let's throw the picture up. You remember this? It's a picture of a turtle on a post. Why? That looks stupid. Okay. Think about this. How did he get there? How did he get there? See, all too often, we're the turtle on the post, and we're like, I'm so awesome. Look at me up on this post. And the question that's begged is, dude, who put you there? They're probably more awesome than you. This is where we are. And yet all too often, we like to claim and brag about the post height with which we've been placed on. Be careful. Our humility is about recognizing that it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the God working through you. It's about the God working through me. May we show him off. Amen. Amen. May it be about his glory. That's where we're headed. That's why I was saying the Bible is not a story of man's redemption. Me world. The Bible is a story of an unbelievable God who needs to be glorified in all that he is. That's where we need to be headed. And what do we say? I'm a turtle on a post. You wouldn't believe my God. Keep pointing to him with all you have. Simple question. Are you stuck on kind of demanding people recognize the height of the post you're on? Or are you more interested in talking about the God who put you there? That's where we need to go. Humble. He was rejected. Are we willing to step out in humility? 
Number two, sacrificial. He paid our debt. Sacrificial. He paid our debt. Notice that it says as it starts out here, surely, surely. In other words, of course this is true. Obviously. I mean, I don't even have to say this one, right? That's what surely means. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He for me. Yet we esteemed him stricken, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. I thought that was a great way of saying it. We're basically looking at Christ being beaten and whipped and mocked. We're watching him be crucified and we're saying things like, well, he's the one who blasphemed. What do you want? Apparently God isn't all for him right now, is he? That's what's going on in the nation of Israel. That's what was being said by this prophet. We're going to be looking at him and basically saying, apparently God's punishing you. You're being smitten by God for your own junk. Unfortunately, the reality is it's for your junk and my junk, our sin, our shortcoming, our lack of holiness. It's our grief and our sorrow that he was on that cross for. You know, it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Him for me. That's what's being captured. Well, why? What's he trying to accomplish with this? What's the purpose? I mean, it's nice that he's paying a price, but what comes of it? It says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. It's about peace with God Almighty. It's about healing that we could never experience on our own. It's about his work in you in such a miraculous way that only the divine could be given credit for it. Turtle on a post. May we experience such heights with him that people can't help but say, who's this God you're with and what's going on? That's the challenge for you and me to make sure we grasp the sacrificial king and all that he's done for us. His payment for us that literally releases an opportunity for peace and for healing. We are in the moment where the sacrificing king is being described Where in the whole of Genesis to Revelation, the storyline is flowing and we're right at climax point. This is the turning point. This is the rising action was explaining it was coming, preparing hearts, getting people excited. Then he bursts onto the scene and he serves with all he has and sacrifices his his very self. That is the turning point where life for you and me had hope, had promise. At purpose, we literally could be changed in an instant by trusting in him. God working for us. There's no sweeter salve than time spent in the power of the Almighty. It's a big phrase. There's no sweeter salve than time spent in the power 
of the Almighty, basking in his glory, him changing you. Not you changing you, that's muscling it. We do that all the time, and then we get like two days out, and we fall the same way. And we're like, doggone it, I thought I had that. Right? And you notice the phrase? I thought I had that. Well, we don't have anything, right? It's the power of the Almighty God unleashing in you. His power, His glory, His change. Literally taking the junk that's all mixed up in the midst of us and peeling it out of you and removing it for eternity. That's transformation. Not something we experience one day and lose the next. That's human effort, muscling it. It comes and goes. But change that lasts a lifetime, progress, real progress. Are you experiencing that? Because that's what's offered is peace and healing. Change where he's changing you. That's what's being offered to you and me from the sacrificial king. Uh, That's compelling. That we need to be drawn to. Notice he says, there's a great illustration at the end. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How many of you have memorized that verse in the past in your life? Okay. So I've memorized that verse. And as I went through that verse, all you like sheep have gone astray. And and blah, 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 blah. We quote along. And we're like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not listening to the words. And I'm just quoting words. And here's what I didn't realize. If you look at before it, it's saying it's not about his sin. It's about our sin. It's not about his mistakes. It's about our mistakes and transgressions. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Him for me. We like sheep have gone astray. One blade of grass at a time. Think about how sheep wander off. It's usually not a bolt. It's usually a dumb wander. It's kind of put your head to the ground and that blade of grass looks pretty good. You know what I'm saying? Chew that. That one looks even greener yet. Oh my word, look what I found over here. Right? And we just start wandering away. Right? And little do we know, but we're like hillsides away and oh, more green. And we can't figure out why we just don't feel the sense and presence of the shepherd. Look up. Where's he at? Lord, I want to be close to you. And moving back close. The sheep close to the shepherd is the one that's often checking with the shepherd. The one that's not is one blade of a grass at a time wandering away. Our sacrificial king is made available for us. As the ultimate shepherd, a payment for you and for me. Now that's compelling. Paid a price with a purpose. All on him, we get the benefit. My request to you is this. Are you ready to stop the wandering? Are you ready to let him heal you? I mean, him heal you. I'm not talking about are you ready to make a checklist of things you're going to go after this week and you're going to try really hard to make sure those don't happen anymore in your life. That's muscling it. I'm talking about God Almighty, this needs to go. I'm not even sure why I'm holding on to it. But I'm here with you and I'm ready for you to show me anything, anything that I need to do so that that is no longer a part of me.
Lord, what do you want done in my life? May your word just rip me. May a friend have a word for me. May may your Holy Spirit show me. Lord, you have sacrificed for me. You've got me. What do you want done? God will unleash in ways you've never experienced. I'm telling you, the only thing that keeps it is a lack of, of getting rid of the junk between us. It's the confession. Get it clean, right? We talked about this last year, the spiritual breathing. Lord, please forgive me. I'm holding on to. It needs to go. You're my sacrificial king. You've got me. What do you want done, almighty one? What do you want done in my life? What do I need to let go of? Number one thing that keeps us from doing that. All the other people we complain about. I'm telling you, just just sit on it for a moment. Think about it. When do I not go after stuff? I can't believe so-and-so said that about me. I think they should get on their knees and work with God on. Do you know how wrong they were when they... Do you understand how prideful they... Right? And then we never really get to us. Glad I got him all fixed up. (laughs) We move on a little bit, right? And then we move to the next one we're having a struggle with. And the next, and the next, and the next. And we keep describing all our human struggles... And God's saying, I need your attention. That's one blade of grass at a time. You're wandering away. Come to me. I've paid it all. I've got peace and I've got healing for you. It's time to stop the wandering. It's time to experience him with all you got. It's our challenge before him. So first, he's humble. Second, he's sacrificial. Third, he's silent. He did not open his mouth when suffering. Silent. He did not open his mouth when suffering. Notice it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is before its shearers silent. So he opened not his mouth. He opened not his what? Silence. It means closing the lips. Not saying, not talking, not fighting. Here's the deal, though. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this is more than him just going, man, I have a few choice words for him, but I'm not going to say them. That's not what Jesus is doing, okay? What he's really doing is he's saying, completely within me, my whole heart is grasping exactly where God wants me. And this is where it is. I have nothing to say. Nothing to say. His whole heart is in the right spot. Please hear me. A call to silence is not a call to shut up. That might be a good starting point. But a call to silence is a call to a heart. That is willing to shut up. A heart that's not even fighting it. Jesus. When he was reviled. Did not revile again. 1 Peter 2. 23. Jesus. Had no answer when they challenged him. And questioned him. In the courts before his crucifixion. Matthew chapter 20. 26 verse 53. (laughs) Why not? Why not speak? Well here's a few answers. Well, maybe he's weak. He just couldn't figure out how to confront. Yeah, that doesn't sound like him, right? Got him confronting the 
money changers. We've got him confronting the Pharisees. We've got him. No. Maybe he was afraid. If I speak now, you never know what's going to happen. Is it fear that's driving him? Or maybe he was just unable. No. You know what? It's that he knew his calling. And he knew what God had called him to. He was strong. He was determined. He was purposeful. And he grasped the moment of what God's will was. And in that moment, he stood exactly where God called him to with no complaint or statement. Now, let's be clear. I mean, come on. It's unfair, isn't it? I mean, the guy's perfect and he's being punished like he's not. Who couldn't look at that from a distance, even if they don't accept that Jesus is God and go, well, that's not right. I mean, something's unfair. Why not speak up to unfair? I mean, it it must have been a bunch of sinful hearts. Why not speak up to these sinful hearts? We better be real careful. God calls us to grasp his will. And in the midst of being in his will, and sometimes his will even includes the mess of this world going on as a mess. Sometimes he's calling us to very carefully decide this is a moment to be quiet. God's working. This is a big call. Other times it's a moment to speak. Galatians 6, 1, sharing with gentleness and truth. Sometimes there's a, cha- a time to challenge, Matthew 18, when we see a brother or sister in sin and we need to step in with them. But this was a moment where Jesus had a higher calling. God's asking for a sacrifice beyond sacrifices. And I grasp what he's asking for. I'm standing in the midst willing to give it. And that's where I'm going. It's complex. Understanding when to be silent and when to speak. Make sure you're grasping what God's will is. I got to tell you. There's going to be two camps. We're going to split this two two ways, right? One's going to be like, never say anything, right? Probably motivated by fear. Probably motivated by a desire to not get caught up in the problems of, a weakness, whatever it might be. The other's like, always say something, right? And now we've got that strong personality leaning in and the determined nature and the I will not let this, right? Be careful. The answer is it's neither of those. And we better know when the right time is. And you better be pretty prayed up. And you better know what God's doing. And you better know where he's moving. And Jesus definitely had that down. And as he stood before his accusers, he grasped what God was doing. And he simply said, silence is my call. I have no answer. I know exactly where I'm headed. It's in that moment that we literally understand the most of God being in charge. It, it says right here, by or like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. I mean, here we go with that lamb statement again. You guys remember a couple weeks back, we were talking about Exodus 12 and the lamb. And John, we see John saying, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our lamb and our sacrifice. He is our great giver. Notice verse verse 8. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Oppression, like unfair usage of authority and power. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Who considered it was for someone else and not for him? Remnants stand up. This is your king for you. Notice the prophecy starts getting very detailed. 
And they made his grave with the wicked. He was literally hung on a cross between two men. Luke chapter 23 verse 32. As criminals hung between them. His death was experienced right there. As a common wicked man. And then it says right after it. Kind of a strange little twist. For the reader at the time of 740. I can only imagine at the time of Isaiah when they saw this. They're like, huh? It says, and he made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich man. With a rich man. How does that fit? Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew 27, 57, offers up his grave for Jesus Christ. This prophecy, 700 and some years before Christ, recorded and penned. We've got manuscripts of it, dated, statements being made, Christ living it out. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, the Almighty King, our Savior, our God Almighty, for you and me, telling us exactly how it's going to come down with rejection, with no speaking, with even to where he's going to be buried. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Perfect in every way. Remember the illustration we did in Exodus chapter 12, right? And we talked about on Nisan the 10th, The lamb was actually supposed to be chosen, selected, and found without blemish. And Jesus Christ on that day walks in, Palm Sunday, on a colt, the lamb presented as perfect. And not less than a week later, five days later, we have him presented as the lamb sacrificed. Shed blood for you and me. But know this, just as in Exodus 12, the covering only counts when you apply it to the doorposts. The covering of blood sitting there in a bucket is no good at all. It's pick it up and put it on the doorposts. Exodus chapter 12 in the Passover. This is the moment, the climax moment, where we're being told in Isaiah, where it's being lived out with Jesus Christ. You have every opportunity to literally take the shed blood of the lamb and apply it to your life. Him for you. It's that simple. It's a metaphor, but it means so much more. It's God Almighty. Please use your shed blood to replace what I owe. Take me right now. You've got me. I'm done. I've been wrestling and fighting and it's over. You have done this for me and I rejected you and you sacrificed for me. Now you've got me. I'm done. No more fighting. No more pride. I'm over. You're my Lamb of God. And I'm trusting in you with all I have. The sacrificial, silent Lamb for us. Here's my question Are you seeking to speak and battle into? Or are you willing to let God move? He's talking right now. Holy Spirit moving in this place. Are you hearing him? He's asking for you to let down your guard. It's time to let him speak to you with all you've got. Battle it. Our pride raises up. We're like, I don't want to hear about it. I got my own thoughts on. Lord, please take me. 
I want to experience your peace and your healing and your perfection. I am compelled by who you are. You've got me. Our response to the humble, sacrificial, and silent king. One last step, though. He's obedient. He succeeded in completing God's will. He's obedient. He succeeded in completing God's will. Check out verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, Yahweh. The personal name of the personal God was personally involved and his will with Jesus Christ was that he carry our junk, our penalty. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see, here's the benefit that Jesus gets out of it. This is God's view, Jesus' benefit. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Jesus is going to see many come to know him. Jesus is going to see many offspring, children, seed spiritually. Jesus is going to see him prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's what's coming. The Messiah sees that. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus Christ, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You and me, we get to have an account that literally says righteous. It it literally, when you look into the bank account, underneath your name, picture it, it literally says righteous. And then in very small print under it, and did not deserve it. Right? Like this is God's gift. It's his shed blood. It's him for me. What an amazing sacrificial king. Obedient to the end. Turning the tide for us. And then it says, Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is the general, God the Father, saying, I'm in charge of this battle. And newsflash, the battle's been won. And I will be sharing the spoils with my leaders. The King Jesus, step up. We're sharing with you the spoils of this take. Hearts and lives turned over to him. You and me turned over to him. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Him for me. You know, as we close this piece, I thought there may be no better way than to really grasp the power of this climax, this turning point. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 27, verses 51 to 54. Matthew 27, 51. As Jesus Christ is being crucified, that's where we're picking up the story. He's on the cross. Luke tells us that at noon, everything went dark for three hours. Imagine that. 
He's suffering. People are deriding. They're commenting. They're making jokes. They're pointing at. They're accusing. And all of a sudden, the sun is blackened out. Clouds, whatever. We don't know what it was exactly, but absolutely dark as the sun is now not shining. Can you imagine in that moment? You're kind of like, something's going on, right? In that, we now pick up here in Matthew. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As man goes in, right, we part it this way, bottom to top, as we part it, God goes in top to bottom, torn from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, massive earthquakes everywhere, things going up. The tombs were opened, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I'm telling you, if that's not compelling, I don't know what is, right? When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. In that moment, climax of sacrifice, the Almighty God, earth shattering, literally rocking that place, earth being Split wide open, lives being brought back to life. The king of the universe for you and me. Turning point. Amen? Like, just say it. Turning point. Say it with me. Turning point. Like, that's what we need to grasp as we sit on this moment in this series. This is the turning point. Him for me. Absolute sacrifice, unbelievable power, authority like you would not believe. And he humbled himself for me. Are you kidding me? That's compelling. Amen. Amen. That's our God. That's our king. That's what draws us to him. May we grasp his powerful moment. May we grasp his sacrifice for us, his obedience that literally shows the will of God being done. How much more should that be you and me being obedient if it was him who was obedient? A call for us to come to him with all we've got and give him our very hearts and lives. Here's what I'm going to ask. Why don't we just have the worship team come on up and let's just take a little time in prayer, okay? It's time for each of us to respond to him. So just go ahead and fold up what you got and put it away. And let's take a moment before our king. So we get to know him.